right, hey, so kids, you can be dismissed. Pastor Gary is going to take very good care of you. One closer, please. <laughs> yeah, hey. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Hey, uh, yeah, just welcome to church. It's good to be here, isn't it? And uh, we're taking a break from our Colossians series, and we're going to start directing our eyes towards a baby Christ, right? I mean, it's hard to believe Christmas is in two weeks. You guys, are you ready? Yeah. Me neither. But Amazon is my friend. Because <laughs> I refuse to go to the store. <laughs> Went to Walmart the other day. I'm like, man, a Saturday, Christmas season. It's terrible. <laughs> but um, it's really amazing because uh, we do set our eyes on Christ, don't we? And uh, life brings us through many different ups and downs. I mean, I remember growing up having many, many presents and just being a very excited kid. And then I remember being younger and having very few presents and being very sad. And now that I'm older, I realize, you know, it doesn't really matter because it's not the real reason, is it? The reason is Christ. And if we can have Christ in our life and we could take a season and just focus on what he has done and the fact that he came to this earth to really take care of our sins, to uh, live amongst us, uh, if we take that time, it really sets us free. And all of a sudden, all the stress of the season can go away. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for today. And just as these next few services, we just, just pay special attention to the Christmas story in the Gospels. And we direct our eyes towards the Messiah that is born. We want to be focused on that, solely on that, Lord. And many times you give us difficulty in life to boil it down to that simplicity where we can see you, Jesus, where we can see you. We just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to turn to two, two passages. Uh, these next few weeks, the sermon, is like the series, is not in any sort of order. <laughs> So it's just kind of, you know, I was reading and, and preparing for the message, and the Lord led me in a, I feel the Lord led me in a direction. Um, so Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, we're going to read this story, and I really want to talk about, you know, having our heart be full of wonder. I mean, do you, ever, do you remember being like a little kid and just being amazed by certain things? I mean, it is so much fun to see kids who, I mean, artists are amazed by the simplicity of, of things, like a butterfly or, or a bug, like a strange bug, you know, for those of us that have boys. <laughs> you know, girls, I don't have any girls, so I don't know what to say there. But I mean, they are very fascinating. It's because, like, in their heart, there is this deep wonder. And as we are reading these stories, we're going to see that there are two groups of people, and in their heart, there are two responses. 
And uh, I don't, uh, I'm just going to say now, I, there's no desire for this to come out in a condemning way where you need to change your heart. If it comes out that way by accident, I'm sorry, but, you know. But the idea here is really that, you know, as believers, we are able to see something wonderful, aren't we? Like, we can read the Bible and see the miracles of Jesus, and we don't try to rationalize it. <laughs> because Jesus is amazing. He is wonderful. You know, I was listening to a message this morning, and the pastor was beginning to speak about the second coming of Christ, and that Christ is going to come in the clouds and call his church to heaven. And we believe that. Why? Because God is wonderful. And when we read this story here, that, that God came in the form of Jesus to be born as a human, and it, it was conceived from a virgin, the Virgin Mary, what do we say? We say this is wonderful. Our heart is full of wonder. But not everybody is full of wonder. And in our own hearts, we are told, you know, through the Gospels and also in the book of Proverbs, that we are to what our own hearts? We are to guard. Yes, thank you. We are to guard our hearts. And that word, I love this word. I say it often because it's one of my favorite passages. And this is like a military term where it says, like, he wants us to take and put like an infantry of soldiers, you know, call in the Air Force, call in the Marines, and have it protect our heart. Why? Because it's very easy for us to rationalize our spirituality and lose our wonder and have a different kind of heart. And we will see that different kind of heart is one that is troubled. So Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, it says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, the wise men came from the east. A wise man from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of, of them where the Christ was to be born. You know, Herod didn't know where the Christ was going to be born. I would think being in Israel and being Jewish, he might want to know that, you know, but he didn't know, so he had to ask some people. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, thus it is written by the prophets, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them that the star appeared and sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child. And when you find him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. Let's turn to one more passage, Matthew chapter 16, verses 25 and 26. Matthew 16, 25 and 26. This is the words of Jesus a few years later after he's born, right? It says, For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is a man 
if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? You know, these two passages are, are familiar passages with us, uh, for us. And uh, I really was thinking of them together for a specific reason because uh, in the first story in Matthew chapter 2, we have, you know, King Herod. And how does it describe his uh, emotional state to the news of a king being born? Yeah, he's concerned. You know, the, the Matthew says that his, he was troubled. Not only was he troubled, but actually all of Israel was troubled. And it made me think very quickly of Matthew chapter 16 because if you do any kind of study of who Herod was, uh, very interesting. Actually, you know, uh, Caesar said of Herod, it says it, it, it would be better to be Herod's swine than to be Herod's son because he was so protect, protective of his throne and he was so concerned for there to be uh, uh, a dynasty, his own dynasty, to reign on the throne and to be gover governing over Israel. And he didn't care how that happened because through that governance, he had authority and he had power and he had wealth. And he himself was taken care of. And actually, Herod was you know, put into his kingship not through like Jewish law, not through the Jews, not through the fact that he deserved to be there because we know very clearly that it was to be, you know, a seat of David that was to be on the throne of Jerusalem, right? So was he from the seat of David? No, he wasn't. Let me ask you, was he Jewish? No, he wasn't. He became like Jewish. He, he clung to Judaism in his young age, uh, through his parents, who, you know, they were actually, uh, I forget where they were actually from, I'm sorry. But, you know, and he came to power because he went and saw Caesar, and he asked Caesar to help him to defeat these armies that were coming into Jerusalem and other provinces of Israel. And he asked Caesar to come and send the Roman army and help us to defeat. And that is how Herod came to reign in Jerusalem. And he was so careful that he would, he even killed his father-in-law. He killed his wife. He killed his sons. And he signed a document saying the day that he dies that everyone in his court was to be executed. Because nobody in his court should rule over him. That is how serious that he really governed this thing, his, his, uh, his authority, his position. So as we read these things, when we read that in Matthew chapter 2, it says that he was troubled, this takes on a whole new meaning, doesn't it? Because actually the Greek word troubled is very interesting because uh, when, we, when we read that word, it really means to stir or to agitate. Um, I was thinking of not using food today, so I'm not going to use food. But I was thinking of using, like, you know, you ever open up an old paint can that was sitting in your basement? Has that ever happened to you? You open it up and you're, you're taking the rust off, you put in the, the mixer, 
and you start to mix it by hand, and you're hoping, you're hoping that it mixes well, and then you find it doesn't, and you're finding out very quickly that that ketchup stain in your dining room is going to stay there for a while because you can't find that paints to go on there. And you're, and you're mixing it, and what do you find? Like there's these chunks, right? Like the paints is chunky, and it doesn't mix well. And then when you open the can, the rust falls into the buckets. That is like what this word agitate means. Like you could open it up, and it looks like, okay, this might work. You, you, there's, for a second, you think this might work. But then it is, you know, it is troubled, we could say, this Greek word. It is agitated. It is stirred. You mix it up, and then these things come to the surface, and all of a sudden we find that there is something in there, and now this is no longer useful. This is the same Greek word that Matthew is using for the heart of Herod. Now, in and of itself, this Greek word to be troubled is not negative, because in our own hearts, we can be troubled all the time, can't we? I mean, how many of you were troubled this week? At least once. How many of you were troubled today? At least twice. <laughs> I mean, we go through every single day, and some level in our own hearts, there is a trouble that happens. Actually, I wanted to turn to, a, I wanted to have you guys turn to a verse. Just, just to read that this word troubled isn't necessarily bad. Turn to Mark chapter 6. Verse 50. Mark 6, 50. And it says, For they all saw him, and I believe this is when they were on the boat, and it was kind of stormy out, right? And they're, they're seeing Jesus, and they think he's a ghost. And when, when they all saw him, they were troubled. It's the same word. They were They were troubled. Meaning like, like God put a stick in their hearts and started stirring it up. And what was in their heart was being revealed. But immediately he talked to them and said to them, Be of good cheer, it is I. Do not be afraid. Meaning very quickly, like there was something in their heart and they were troubled. But very quickly, God, Christ reveals himself to the disciples and said, Be of cheer and don't be afraid. Because when we are troubled in our hearts, if there is like bad stuff in our heart, what can happen? We can be afraid. What do you think happened to Herod? He was troubled in his heart. It was stirred up. It was mixed. There was something going on. And inside of his heart, there was no goodness in there. There was no hope of a Messiah. And, and in all of our hearts, you know, there is, there is deception in our hearts. I understand that. And in, in us, there is nothing that dwells good. There is no, not one thing that's good inside of our hearts. Like, I understand this. But as believers, there is something different yet still, right? That we have hope in our life. We have faith in our life. We have peace. We have rest. And even in the midst of trouble, even in the midst of persecution, even in the midst of turmoil, there is still something greater in our hearts. And that is like when, when we are stirred up, our hearts are stirred, like yes, this stuff might come to the top and it might be revealed, but at the same time, 
we're still able to praise the Lord, though it may be by faith. Right? Because we have cheer. Because we know it is God. It is I. It is Christ. You know, so it is amazing. This word is also used for Jesus himself in the Gospel of John when he is at the Garden of Gethsemane. It says that his heart was troubled. His heart is troubled. Jesus' own heart was troubled, meaning that there is a situation in the Garden of Gethsemane, as we know it, like his heart was being stirred. And there's one more. Yeah, I guess I didn't put it in my notes. There is one more time where Jesus' heart was troubled, even though he knew all things, that there was a situation. So in and of itself, to be troubled in our life is not negative, but it only becomes an issue when there is something dark and deep in our hearts. And what do we see with Herod? We see with Herod that there is something dark and deep in his heart, and that is this very simple thing, is that there is a heart of worship towards himself. At the center of his heart, there is not Christ. There's not creation. There's not the work of God. But there is only self. Self-worship, self-gain, self-satisfaction. So the moment that these wise men came and that pot, that pot was stirred and it was at, his heart was agitated, he became very excited. Actually, one scholar says it this way. He says that jealousy in his heart was excited. And I could imagine a, a man who is envious, a man who is jealous, a man who is in complete control of the throne and in complete control of his life, and he's balancing this relationship between the Roman Empire and the Jews and his wealth and his dynasty, and he's teetering on that, and he's trying to protect it. I could imagine, like, here is an issue that comes. So he murders somebody. There goes, there goes the issue. It's gone, right? So then maybe for a season in his life, there is peace. Then another issue comes up, and what does he do? He murders. <laughs> this is Herod's issue, I guess. I mean, there's probably more stuff going on. And then now there's peace in his life. But the issue in his heart was never dealt with. And what does he do here in Matthew chapter 2? If you continue reading the chapter, what is Herod's response? Murder. Murder. Everybody to and under, you're dead. That's what, that was Herod's response. Why? Because jealousy was excited. But then on the other side, we have this other group of people, and they are called the Magi. We, the three wise men we always see at the nativity scene. You know, we sing songs and we have ideas about them. How many were there? We don't really know. Where did they come from? We don't really know. We think that there was three because there were three gifts that were brought, right? What were the three gifts? Gold, yeah, good. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Very simple. I mean, in Asian cultures from the East, 
Even today, we practice the same thing. Uh, when you go to somebody's house, what do, you, what do you do? You bring something. Like every time I went to you know, a Chinese friend's house, I always brought a bag of oranges or a bag of dragon, or you know, something, and say, here, this is for you. You never show up at dragon fruit. I didn't finish my sentence. <laughs> I don't bring dragons. <laughs> you know. But we, we always bring something. It was the same back then. So we know that they were from the East. We knew that it was their culture to bring something that was fit for a king. But we do not understand like what was their, what was their understanding of who this king would be. It is safe to say that this star, and we're going to talk about how that they knew about the star, is really, to me, is amazing. But they, they followed the star to Israel, and it led them to King Herod. Because why? That is a safe place to assume a king would be born there. Right? I mean, if a king is going to be born, it's probably going to be born in a palace. If a king is going to be born, it's probably going to be born by the presiding king. So I'm just going to come, and here we are. Like Here is this entourage of camels and all these servants, and how long did it take them, and how much food they had to bring, and how many gifts they had to bring. I mean, it was an entourage. It was a sight to behold. It was, it was beautiful. It was a wonder, right? And Herod very quickly realizes, this isn't for me. <laughs> I thought that this was for me. He was probably a little excited but what happens is that instead of him being excited for himself, jealousy is excited and he becomes envious and he begins a plot in his heart. But that is what we know about these magi. The word magi comes from those, uh, the word meaning to those that study the stars. I want you to turn to one more Bible verse in the Old Testament. Numbers 24, verse 17 Numbers 24, 17, and this is a prophecy speaking about a star of Jacob. Numbers 24, 17, it says, I see him, but do not know. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel and batter the brow of Moab and destroy the sons of Tumut. Simple verse, but this is a prophecy speaking about a star that will lead to a Messiah. And you can follow those verses and you can study Jewish history and understand that this was the thought that was understood. So here's, I mean, here's the amazing thing is that a bunch of magi from a whole nother country. And, and there's like all these assumptions on where they were from. And if you study that, it is so interesting. But the point is they're from another country that did not revere God. They did not revere Yahweh. They had no understanding of a Messiah coming to reign. And if you read this verse, if they understood this verse, they're going to come and this king is going to what? Defeat Moab and defeat you know, the Gentiles surrounding Israel. You know, but they were the ones who understood, a lot of scholars believe, this passage, meaning that they had this passage in their hands, and when they were studying the stars, this passage came to their minds. 
Do you understand the, 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 the weights of that? Like a bunch of heathen, you know, Gentile, rich people understood more of the Bible than the Jewish king did. The Jewish king had to go to all his scholars and tell, where does it prophesy that the Messiah will be born? And they're probably like, oh, I don't know, let me Google it. <laughs> yeah, they had to go to like some office with a bunch of scrolls and open and read it. And I could imagine, you know, in, in a king's court, there, how many, how many like, you know, scribes, how many, you know, teachers had to run into the office and find an answer very quickly before Herod killed them. <laughs> I mean, I could imagine like a hundred little, you know, little bookworms running to the library and unrolling the scrolls and trying to figure out where this was going to happen. They did not know. They did not know. But these men from a foreign country came. But the amazing thing is, how many obstacles did they face that would cause them to not come? First, they had to know the scriptures. They're studying the stars. They had to know something about the Messiah. They figured that out. So they end up in Jerusalem. How long did that take them? We have no idea, but it took a while. And they go to King Herod, and they're there like, okay, we're here, ready to worship, you know, your baby. Like, oh, not here. You know, the Magi are probably scratching their head. Maybe another reason to turn around. And then the star reappears, and they go to Bethlehem, uh, to Bethlehem and they're led to a manger where there is a, a woman who, you know, sorry, yeah, maybe it, it probably wasn't a manger. They were probably had a house in Bethlehem. But a very poor house with very simple people. And here is this little boy. And they could have said, no, that's not him. That's not him. They could have turned around, right? Meaning this, this, the same conditions that troubled Herod's heart were the same conditions that were there to trouble the Magi's hearts, right? Meaning that Herod's throne was in jeopardy because of a king. Okay, there's trouble going on. And here are the Magi, and they are working hard to find this king to worship, and they get there, and there is no king, and they get to another place, and there is a simple, poor boy. There could be trouble. But we don't read about the Magi's heart being troubled, do we? What do we read? Yeah. Isn't that amazing? They worshiped. It says that they worshiped. That is a heavy, heavy word. And because in Scripture, who is to be worshiped? God and God alone. We read that actually John in the book of Revelation, chapter 22, that John goes to worship an angel thinking that the angel was God, and the angel says, nope, not me. Don't worship me because I am not God. We actually read in the book of Acts, chapter 10, that Cornelius goes to worship Peter. And Peter says, no, you must not worship me. 
And of course, we go to the Ten Commandments and it says that you shall have no other idols, meaning you shall not worship any other God except for me. So this idea of worship is being used of these Gentile people, we begin to understand that maybe they had some idea of what they were doing. You know, it's funny because you, know, you, you study and you read and there's a lot of assumptions, but the Bible is holy. The Bible is inspired. So there are assumptions that we can draw also from the Bible. And this is one, one thing that we can say from concluding this in the Bible, that the Magi had an idea that this baby boy would one day rule the world. Not only Israel. That maybe that the Magi had a better view of Jesus being the Christ than the Jews had about him being their Messiah. Because the Jews thought that, the, oh, the Messiah is going to deliver us from the Roman Empire. But those that had the proper view of Christ, they understood that Jesus would redeem us from our sins. That's what John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb that was slain. Right? Who will redeem us from our sins. Redeem us from our sins. Not from our oppressors, but from our sins. Meaning the condition that my heart is in is so deep that I need more than a Savior to redeem me from my oppressor, but I need a Savior to redeem me from my own self. From the kingdom that I am living in, the, the backyard, Satan's backyard that I am living in, I need a redeemer to redeem me from myself and sin. Because left to myself, what's going to happen? I will lose my wonder. And when that heart is stirred up, I will find that there is sin in my heart, that there is jealousy in my heart, that there is impatience, that there is you know, unforgiveness in my heart, that there is so much wickedness in my heart and it is being stirred. And, and I'm like, no, I don't want that to be revealed. My life is okay. And now, and that's what we read. That's what makes news all the time now, isn't it? Hearts being stirred and what is being revealed. But here are the magi. And it says that they worship him. I just want to read this uh, Worship represents the, the most common Near East act of adoration and reverence and also carries the idea of profound awe and respect. Respect. Some believe that the word uh, in the Greek here is related to another word, which means for a dog to lick the master's hand. Yeah, here's Charlie licking my, the, you know, pizza sauce off my fingers. Last night. Yeah, lick, licking, licking. But that's what a dog does to its master, right? So the idea of worship, what does it hold? In closing, I was thinking of this. And we see this in the Magi. We see that the idea of worship, we find that there is wonder in our life. That means that there is the ability to see beyond myself. For me to have wonder in my heart, it means that I can see beyond myself. You know, Herod, he could not see beyond himself. He thought about himself. He thought about his kingdom. 
But here were these magi, and they could see very far beyond, and they could see Christ. You know, if we ever in our lives, we become so focused on self, and we lose our wonder, we, you know, we find ourselves, and we, I mean, I think you would admit this, we'd find ourselves kind of stuck. We find ourselves stuck. But when we maintain the wonder of God, we're able to go through things that seem so ridiculous and so painful, yet we are able to see what God is doing in the midst of them. Amen? The next thing about worship and the heart of worship is that there is humility. You know, it is one thing to have the ability to see beyond myself, but then there has to be humility in my life where I give up on self. I have to give up on myself. And again, we're looking at this story in Matthew chapter 2, and we're seeing Herod. He was not able to have that wonder, and therefore, because of that, he was not able to have any humility. He wasn't able to give up on himself and give real worship to Christ. And the last thing we see in worship is that there is submission that where we give up self and then we give ourselves over to another. You see how that kind of just flows in our life? We see beyond ourself, we give up on ourself, and then we give ourselves to another. That is what worship means. I mean, a dog is licking my hand. He's looking beyond himself. He's giving up himself. He's listening very carefully. And he's giving himself to another. It is the same thing as believers in our lives. When we have a heart of worship, what are we doing? But we are, we are looking at God and we are seeing what he is doing. And we are amazed. Are you amazed today at what God is doing? Or are you like looking naturally at things and are you discouraged yeah don't be because God is doing something amazing in your own heart and the amazing thing about that is that it's not finished yet you know I could be you know and this is like this is this is this is fun to talk about in a church plant with a, a small group of people we could be thinking this way right Oh, you know, start complaining. And, I mean, this is what happened. We could start complaining and start trying to mathematically figure things out and start trying to correct ourselves versus looking at what God is doing and having our hearts wholly submitted in humility towards the God of all creation, towards the God who is sovereign over our entire life, to God who has called us into this life and saying, God, what, what is your will? What is your heart's? What is the thing that you want me to have in wonder today? And I stand here today, and you stand here today, and I can preach this kind of a message today because we are not Herods. <laughs> We're not. This isn't, you know, correct your heart, get right with God, or else you're going to be, you know, dead <laughs> like Herod died and forgotten by history or, or remembered in a negative way. It's not that kind of a message. Because what power do I have to correct my own heart where I have the ability to, you know, perform my Christianity, to walk with Christ, to do these kind of things? 
I don't have that kind of ability. But the ability that I do have is I have the ability in simplicity to worship God. To worship Him. And to say to Him, God, what are you doing and what can, what can amaze me today? What, what can I stand here in awe of today? And there's always something. There's always something. You know, a little, little testimony. You know, every, we, we were in China and every year we'd come back. And we kind of lived in China and, you know, we would always revisit the idea of going back or staying home at the end of every, in, in, January, in June. We'd always revisit and, like, maybe we stay, maybe we don't, don't stay. Maybe we go back to China and, uh, you know. And I remember having these conversations every year. And, and I would say, you know, being honest, like, like the Magi, there could be many reasons to not go back. There could be many reasons, right? I mean, just naturally thinking and not even being negative, just naturally speaking, there are many reasons to not go. But what happened often is that a person's face would come to our mind. And we would remember their name. And we would say, but what about, and we would say their name. We weren't going back to fandom. We weren't going back to, you know, you know, superstar status, being missionaries and being loved. But we were going back to a person who God put in our hearts. And we saw what God was doing in their life. And we were in wonder. And we were left to worship the Lord and say, you are doing something great in their life. And the fact that we are called to be there and to minister to them and to love them, it is so amazing. It is so awe-inspiring. And, and, you know, and, and that's what a heart of worship does. It looks beyond ourself. It gives up self and it submits to the heart of God. That is what worship is. So as we look at this story in Numbers chapter 2, I'm so thankful, uh, I mean, in, in uh, Matthew chapter 2, I am so thankful that I stand in the midst of a bunch of, bunch of worshipers, a bunch of people that have no problem standing in awe of God's majesty, of reflecting on his birth, on reflecting on his work on the cross, on reflecting the work that he's doing in your life personally, and, or reflecting on the work that he's doing in somebody else's life and co-laboring in that work. I am so thankful that I can stand in the midst of a bunch of worshipers. And I pray that that will be our heart through this season, that we could just really have a heart of worship towards God and that there would not be a single thing that comes in and troubles us. And when our heart is stirred and that deception is revealed, that sin is revealed in our heart, what do true worshipers do? They run to God. They run to Him. They run to God. They are not, you know, groveling in self-pity. We are not sitting there with guilt and shame, but we run to God and we worship Him and we give Him our hearts. And we pray to him as our father. Amen.
Amen. Amen. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father.